Hmm. Where to begin? <laughs> Beginnings and endings. This um, this just this past January, just a few months ago, um, marked um, thirty years that I've been teaching, and uh, it's um, it just in hindsight, it's gone by so quickly, and. I, I very clearly remember the beginning, and um, and there's an appearance of ending coming. Although um, the uh, the mantra that Molly and I have that Molly spoke about the other night, um, relax expectation and trust in the outcome. <laughs> um, who knows where ending and beginning is? <laughs> mm. what's, um, what's ending is a particular form, and what's beginning is totally unknown. And it may be the same thing, may be completely different. Don't know. Um, over, the, over these years, through these years, uh, a number of people... Uh, quite a number of people have asked me to speak more about my own practice and my own path. And, um, and I thought maybe this is a, a timely time to do that. Um, I, haven't, I haven't spoken much about my own practice and my own path because um, when I began teaching... There were no teacher training programs. It was learning on the job, <laughs> and um, and my my teacher at the time, um, one year uh, I was sitting retreat with him in India, and um, and he said, "I think you should start teaching," and I just said, "No way, <laughs> forget it," and. Um, a year later, he said to me again, I think you should start teaching. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, um, and, and I asked him, what, what makes a person a teacher? And nothing about training. <laughs> it was, um, your teacher tells you you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> And people ask you. And those were the three criteria for, for teaching. And so the, um, the following year, <laughs> he, um, he brought it up again. And I said, um, okay, next year here in Bodhgaya, we'll see if I'm ready. <laughs> and um, so the following year, um, I arrived in Bodhgaya, and I said, I don't really feel ready, but okay. And so I started that year by, um, all I did was meet with small groups and individual meetings, so I didn't give any instructions or any talks, which was a tremendous relief to me. <laughs> and, um, and of course, that's where Molly and I met. Molly was sitting on that retreat. Um, yeah, and then the uh, the following year I went back again, and the following year I had to give some instructions and um, and an evening talk, and that was rather terrifying. <laughs> and um, and then um, he said, um, "Come to England, come to Gaia House, and do some teaching at Gaia House." So Gaia House was a retreat center in England. And um, it so happened by that time that Molly was in England and was a manager at Gaia House. <laughs> so, so I arrived, and um, and there was there was a, a a small community, a community of seven or eight people associated with Gaia House. And I moved into the community, and my first teaching assignment there was to teach a. I can't remember if it was five days or seven days, but to teach a retreat completely on my own. <laughs> so, talk about being thrown into the fire <laughs> and on-the-job training. So, so, my, um, so my teacher, 
his his approach and what he um, and what he kind of gave me instruction for was in teaching. He said, "Teach the Dharma. Don't teach about yourself." And and that's always wrong with me. And so so through the years, I've I've tended to speak very little about my own my own practice, but I've also tried very hard to teach only from my practice. And so that um, as much as possible, what I have taught has, has arisen out of my practice, my experience, and my study, and, and, my, and my understanding of, of the Buddha's teachings. And, and it never felt so necessary to make it a personal thing. And so that's so that's my excuse. <laughs> so tonight I'll I'll try and make it a little bit more personal, and just um, perhaps just talk about and tell some stories about about my own my own path and my own practice. So I think I think my practice. Um, when I think back, when did I start? When did I start my meditation practice? And I think it actually started when I was about four years old. <laughs> and of course, I didn't know it at the time, but um, I grew up in a small town, and there was a forest right next to our house. And whenever I could, and I, re- I remember from around age four, whenever I had the opportunity, I would go into the forest, and I would go in summer, winter, spring, rain, snow, sun, didn't matter. I would go in, and there was one tree that I would sit down under. And I remember I would, I would just sit there and just be absolutely still and quiet and just feel the ground. And of course, many, many years later, I realized that was my meditation practice. And this went on for a number of years, quite a number of years. And then, um, well, not quite a number, maybe like four or five years, and then we moved away from the forest. And that was the ending. So there was a beginning of my practice, and there was an ending. And, um, and it was completely forgotten, just totally forgotten. I went through, through high school and through university with you know, just no sense of it, no thought of it, nothing. You know, knew absolutely nothing about meditation or Buddhism or anything, had no interest in religion. <laughs> And, um, and when I graduated from university, I took my first job with the, um, the agreement that after six months of working, I would have six months off. <laughs> I was itching to travel. And, um, and my bosses agreed to that. <coughs> they were good bosses. <laughs> and they, they agreed. And so I took off and I went to Europe. I was traveling around in Europe and um, through a number of circumstances, um, circumstances, you know, some people would call it circumstances, some would probably call it karma. <laughs> um, whatever it was, I ended up in India. <laughs> and on the way to India, at the six-month point, I found myself in the middle of Afghanistan. <laughs> and I thought, oh, six months are up. And I wrote a letter <laughs> and saying, sorry, I'm in Afghanistan. I won't be back and say after six months, uh, maybe another six months. Um, and I carried on and, and arrived in India. And I went to, my first stop in India was Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama was living. And... Um, at that time, Dharamsala, Dharamsala has grown and developed a lot since then, but at that time it was literally a Tibetan refugee camp. And, and arriving there and, and seeing and, and starting to meet these people, these people who had fled on foot over the mountains, through the, through the snow, had left behind everything, <coughs> left behind their homes, their families, their um, their possessions, um, their country, their culture. They had left behind everything and they were living in this, in this refugee camp. And yet it struck me that these people were the, 
the happiest and kindest and most generous and welcoming people I had ever met. And I started started to wonder, how could this be? Here I am, you know, I've, I've left my home, I've left everything behind. I, you know, I had, I, I think I left in my parents' basement a little pile of things like this. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking, I've, I've left all this behind and, and um, I'm certainly nowhere near as happy and generous as they are, as these people are. What's, what's this all about? And I started asking them, and, um, and they said, oh, it's because of the Buddha Dharma. It's because of the Dharma, because of the Buddha. And, uh, and, and, and enough of them told me this that I got interested. And um, so here I am in, in Dharamsala, surrounded by Tibetans, and there was a small group of Westerners there at the time studying with um, a teacher who had been appointed by the Dalai Lama to, to teach this small group of Westerners. And I thought, okay, I'll start here. And then I found out that they didn't speak any English, and in order to start, you had to learn Tibetan. <laughs> and I had no interest whatsoever <laughs> Uh, I had just finished with university, <laughs> learning a studying a language, learning a new language and a very strange language. No, no. And then, um, so I started talking to these Westerners and, and and asking around and talking to more people. And um, they told me about this 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 Burmese Indian man, S. N. Goenka, and I know some of you are familiar. With uh, with Goenka retreats, if not Goenka himself, and um, and I went off to do a retreat with him, a ten day retreat, knowing absolutely nothing, <laughs> absolutely nothing. Never sat since you know, probably since age ten. I had never sat still for a moment, um, and I certainly had no idea of what meditation meant. I'd I knew nothing. I had never heard of the Buddha until I arrived in Dharamsala. So I went off on this this 10-day retreat, and I arrived, and I found, oh, it's going to be in silence, and it's going to be hours and hours and hours of just sitting, um, no walking meditation, no standing meditation, no yoga, just sitting, <laughs> day in and day out, from like, 4.30 or 5 in the morning until 9.30 at night. And um, so I began. And the first four days were absolute hell. <laughs> I didn't know. You know. Every possible hindrance was there 24 hours a day. And, um, and I think doubt was probably the biggest one. What on earth am I doing here? So when I say this, when I'm, whenever I'm talking about the hindrances, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, know that this, I know that this thought comes up. <laughs> what on earth am I doing here? And um, in this first retreat, <laughs> this first retreat was held in... Um, in Rajasthan, which is the, the western part of India, and it's a desert. And it was in this, this um, it was actually in the countryside outside of this small city in the middle of the desert. So here we are in this, this house, this big house in a walled-in compound, surrounded by desert, and it's a drought. It's like 40, 45 degrees in the daytime. It's a drought. Every morning, a camel caravan would come into the house, into the courtyard, with bags of water. We were allowed to bathe once in the ten days. <laughs> um, talk about dukkha. <laughs> there is a lot of dukkha. <laughs> and, um, and then all this doubt coming up, and I look around and I think, I can't leave. I wouldn't have a clue how to get out of this place. <laughs> it's surrounded by desert. I don't know if it's this way or that way to the town. <laughs> so I stayed. 
<laughs> and um, and miraculously, miraculously, on the on the fifth day, and I, I remember the moment very clearly. Just in an instant, it was like a switch went. Just in an instant, and everything settled, and mind went reasonably quiet. And the body was able to just sit still. And um, and and for the and then so for the last four or five days, I was really able to absorb a lot of the teachings and really settle into the practice. And in those four or five days, I got hooked. In those four or five days, um, and this was four or five days of doing probably eight or nine hours a day of body scan. And, and one thing I learned from that was the tremendous value and power of sustaining one form. Of not jumping around doing a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of here and a bit of there. I'll do breathing for a few minutes and then I'll do body scan for a few minutes and no, that doesn't feel good. I'll stand up for a few minutes and no, 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 no. Oh, should I do my breathing here or here or here? I really got that just staying steady with one thing through all the arisings and passings, all the beginnings and endings bore fruit. And and the, the fruit of that, of of, of doing that practice for me was I really began to understand the the depth of subtlety of impermanence. Just by paying attention to the body and just going up and down through the body hour after hour after hour, day after day after day, really starting to feel impermanence, impermanence in the sense of the vibrations changing, but also impermanence in in the sense of beginning to notice how well one one sitting I'd sit you know for the first ten minutes it would be just a nice smooth flow of nice pleasant sensations, and then and then a switch would go and it would be hell again, <laughs> and then maybe an hour later ah, oh. and and just just to experience how quickly and suddenly and how extreme the changes could be. And then within that, starting more and more to see the subtleties of the changes and the arisings and passings, the beginnings and endings. A very, very powerful effect on me. It, it, made, it made being in India much easier after that. Anyone who's been to India can understand that. And the other thing I got from that retreat was um, was about metta. Metta. Um, Goenkaji. Has anyone else here? Did anyone else here have the great privilege of practicing actually with Goenkaji, or is it all done by video? <laughs> Molly. Yes. Um, Goenkaji exuded metta. And every morning he chanted the Metta Sutta. And, and those of us who, on some mornings I was able to get up early enough to go in, and there was about an hour where he would be chanting before the first sitting. And, and occasionally I'd be able to get up early enough to go and, and sit in on the chanting. And the chanting was just beautiful. And one of the things he chanted was the Metta Sutta. And, um, and, I, and I really got a sense of the the importance and the value of metta in the practice. And and so I finished that retreat and, and by then I was I was hooked and I immediately signed up for the next retreat. Um, I might also add as well <laughs> the other condition of this retreat was that it was it was right before the start of the uh, India Pakistan war in nineteen seventy one. And we all knew there was a war coming, and we were almost on the border with Pakistan. <laughs> and, and in fact, after the, at the end of the retreat, there was a reporter there from the local newspaper, and um, 
And he said, I want to get a group photo of you all. So we all, there was about, um, maybe about 25 or 30 Westerners and about the same number of Indians on that retreat. And so we all got in a group and took a picture. And the next day, the photo was in the newspaper, and the uh, the line under it was that we were all CIA spies. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to leave. <laughs> So next retreat was in, in, in Mumbai, which at that time was called Bombay. And, um, <laughs> and by this time, the war had already started. And, uh, and to get to where the retreat was, had to walk through the red light district of Bombay. <laughs> and, um, and this was rather, rather shocking. This was a, a real exposure to Dukkha. The, um, the red light district in Bombay was a street of, of um, two- and three-story buildings, and the ground floor had like a, an open veranda with bars on it. And the actual intention of the bars was to keep the monkeys out. But behind the bars were these women, all heavily made up, reaching out saying, come, 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 come. And it, it was all the prostitutes. And... And and I ju- and and just walking through there just really woke me up to the the dukkha in this world, the tremendous amount of suffering. And um, and again, um, it kind of clicked into the, the the whole meta thing. And then on this retreat again, it was very hot, and um, and the room was um, much more crowded. <laughs> There were more people in a smaller room, and um, there were these fans, ceiling fans. In India, there were ceiling fans everywhere. And, and we'd come in to sit, and someone would turn on the fans, and, oh, <laughs> great. And then Goenkaji would come in, and he'd turn off the fan. <laughs> and he'd say, no, you have to experience your own inner sensations. And I thought that was rather cruel at the time. <laughs> but, um, but I came to understand that it was very good practice. It was very good practice. And on this retreat, on this retreat, and I've spoken about this before, some of you have heard this. On this retreat, I was, I was sitting at the back. Uh, even after this, this transformation from the, the, uh, the impermanence, the anicca, um, I still had a lot of pain, tremendous pain. And um, I would sit right at the back, leaning against the wall. <laughs> so those of you who sit at the back, leaning against the wall, I understand. <laughs> um, and I'm sitting at the back, this one day, I'm sitting at the back, and I'm leaning against the wall, and the room is very quiet, and I was feeling very still and very quiet, and I'm just going... Up and down, up and down, feeling opening to the sensations and allowing them to arise and pass. And all of a sudden, there's a scream. And the woman across the aisle from me had jumped up and was screaming, Why are you making us do this? Why are you torturing us? We don't have to do this. We shouldn't have to do this. And she started swearing, and she started walking towards the front, towards Goenkaji. And she's walking and walking, and, um, and, and yelling and swearing. And Goenkaji just looked right at her and started chanting the Metta Sutta. And she kept screaming and kept walking, and he kept looking at her, just held her in his, in his gaze and kept chanting. And by the time she got to the front, she was, she was doing walking meditation. She had slowed down. She had stopped streaming, screaming. She got right in front of him. She went down on her knees and put her head in, her, in his lap and cried. And it just... To me, it was just such a powerful demonstration of the power of metta. And it, it reminded me of, of the story of, of the Buddha, 
Well, the, the Buddha, there's a, a story about the Buddha. The Buddha had a, um, um, a cousin who, um, who had um, dreams of taking over the Sangha. And he, um, he was always plotting with the son of the local king to kill the Buddha and kill the king <laughs> so that they could take over the Sangha and take over the kingdom. And um, he was always coming up with these schemes to kill the Buddha. And one of the schemes was um, his, his friend, the prince, got the keys for the elephant stables. And, um, and together they opened the stable and they turned loose the, the, the wildest elephant. And they got the wild elephant to charge towards the Buddha. And the Buddha, the Buddha did metta practice. And just like in this with Goenkaji, the elephant came charging to the Buddha and stopped and got down on its knees and bowed down to the Buddha. And, and I had heard this story and I think, oh, oh, come on, how can that happen? That's, <laughs> that's crazy. But then seeing, seeing this and just, just really getting the power of metta and, and the, the tremendous importance of the metta practice. So those, those two retreats had a, had a tremendous impact on me. And, um, and oh yeah, and the second retreat was, was during the war, and it was under blackout. We were sleeping, we were sleeping. I was, I was sleeping in a room that was um, about the size of the rooms we have here, and there were about eight or ten of us <laughs> sleeping on thin straw mats on a concrete floor in a row with about this much space between each of us and rats running all over us all through the night. <laughs> this is good practice. <laughs> At the time we said they're just mice. <laughs> but I know they were rats. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then because of the war, there was total blackout. And if you so much as lit a match, there were... There were um, there were civil defense people out in the street and they would throw rocks at your window. Of course, there were shutters and the shutters would be closed, but the light would come out through a crack. And then sometimes at night we would go up on the roof, on the roof of, the, uh, of the building and we could see the airplanes coming from Pakistan and the Indian Army shooting missiles at them. <laughs> and we'd, we'd watch the missiles going over and and see the, the, the light trails and, and the airplanes turning and flying away. Um, <laughs> wonderful practice. <laughs> really, really testing equanimity. <laughs> and, and Goenkaji would, would be, would, uh, he, uh, he talked a lot about anicca, impermanence, and equanimity, equanimity, <laughs> with his, his Indian accent, equanimity. And so we had lots of practice with that. So after these two retreats, I went off and I traveled around India for a few more months. And then, um, and, and, I, and, and after that, I, I really sustained uh, a daily practice. Twice a day, I would, I would sit. And then after a few months, I was running out of money. And so I came back, came back to Canada. And, and started working, and um, and and I kept up this practice. I kept up the sitting practice, and and after a while, I started wondering why am I doing this? What's this all about? Mm-hmm. And the the hindrances just started coming up again, and I just kept doing it. And um, and then um, and after a few years, I was ready to travel some more, and I had always wanted to see Machu Picchu. So I went to uh, South America, and after about three months in South America traveling around, I realized where I really wanted to be was meditating in India. But I had to see Machu Picchu first. <laughs> so um, so I met, um, I met, I met a, a guy from the States, and we were traveling together and heading, heading to Machu Picchu. And um, 
And he asked me about my time in India, and I told him about the meditation. He said, well, let's meditate. And I said, well, yeah, but you need somebody to teach. He said, well, you can tell me. And so I guess that was actually my first teaching. So I thought of mindful of breathing. And we would sit together almost every day. And that kind of revived my, 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 my understanding of why. And um, so I saw Machu Picchu, and then I was running out of money again, <laughs> back to Canada, worked, and then as soon as I had enough money, back to India. And I got back to India, and I, I wrote a letter. In those days, there was no email. There, were, there weren't even telephones in India then. Uh, I sent a letter to Goenkaji's secretary and asked, um, when, when's the next retreat, and where is it, and how do I register? And a couple of weeks later, I got a letter back saying, uh, he's not teaching now, and, and there's no, there are no retreats scheduled. And I thought, well, that's very strange. So now what am I going to do? And, um, and I heard about another teacher, a, Western, a Westerner who was a Buddhist monk, um, who was um, living in um, a town up in the mountains, Dalhousie, and there was a community living with him. And um, the first 10 days of every month, they did a 10-day retreat. And the rest of the time, the rest of the time they lived together as a community. So, um, so I went there. And, um, and I arrived, and, and I, was, I was very welcomed and joined in the community. And the teacher was Christopher Titmus, who, who became my teacher for many years, and who was actually the one who um, coerced me into teaching. <laughs> um, and, um, <laughs> and after I was there two or three days, I found out that Goenkaji was actually right in the town teaching a retreat. <laughs> but the retreat had already started, and I was already here, so I, so I, so I stayed here and, um, and began practicing with, with Christopher. And... Um, and 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 and, and this um, this community was a wonderful community, and, and and developed some very close friendships in in this community. Um, but um, what I what I learned in this in, in from living in the community and from Christopher's teaching and from the practice the. The, the 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 thing the the one aspect of the teachings that that stood out for me there and again it was it was difficult um, so first of all it's difficult living in community <laughs> and um, and secondly it was it was it was um, yeah again it wasn't the best of conditions it was not it was not pleasant or comfortable but it was it was very supportive conditions for practice, and what um, what really stood out for me of the teachings there was the teachings on anatta, and some of you are maybe not aren't so familiar with this term. So this this Pali word anatta, um, it literally means without selfness, without selfness. Um, what it doesn't literally mean is how it's often translated as no self. Uh, if we if we say no self, if we say there's no self, then it's um, it's a, the, the other evening I talked just very briefly. I talked about the relative and the ultimate, and to say there's no self is a denial of the relative. So so what this word means this this term anatta, it's without selfness, and and can expand that to explain it. It's without self centeredness. Without self-centeredness, so our our general perception of the world is I'm here and the world is all out there. So I'm putting myself. I'm constantly putting myself at the center of the universe, and I forget that everyone else is the center of the universe also. And um, so it's it's me here and the whole world out there. And if I don't like it, I have to fight against the whole world. If I like it, I have to try and get, get. Um, so it's without self-centeredness, and it's without separate self. Anatta is without separate self. 
So it's it's the teachings of interconnectedness, of non-separateness, of non-duality. And um, and and Christopher was was had a, a tremendous ability to bring this out in in all of his talks, in almost all of his talks, in a way that could really you know after several months of doing retreats and living in community, really starting to get a sense of of what this means. And 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 I think I think community living as difficult as as it can be is probably the <laughs> the best ground for for examining this, for exploring this. Really really exploring the the interactions and, and how we relate to each other and and coming to understand the the interdependence interdependence so this 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 again this was like a, another beginning and a kind of ending in in my practice just coming coming to this understanding and and when the, when 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 the when insight comes in a way that really settles into the being and um, and really becomes part of the being it is like an ending in the sense that you can't go back. You can't go back. So this, um, yeah. So then the next, um, the next few years, I'm going to go over, <laughs> uh, over. Um, but um, this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the next the next few years I spent most of the time in India and um, and I would spend time um, I would um, during monsoon season I would rent a little house up in the mountains and um, just a little a little house a little one room cabin and I had my little one room that was maybe you know maybe eight feet by eight feet. <laughs> and in there I had a little wood stove and I had a little kerosene stove and I had a bed. And I can't remember, there might have been a chair. <laughs> and um, and some, some of you have mentioned to me on this retreat and, and many have mentioned to me on previous retreats how much they dislike walk, uh, the standing meditation. And um, and I have to admit that I detested the standing meditation. I found it so difficult, um, so unpleasant, and um, just did not want to do it at all. But here I was, it's monsoon season, it's pouring rain out. I'm in this little cabin, there's nowhere to do walking meditation. And I wasn't going to repeat this, um, this Goenka project of just sitting, 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 sitting. And so I started standing. And, um, and, and I found that after a while, I really fell in love with standing. And again, it was, it was a matter of, of going through the struggle and staying steady with it, staying present with the struggle, and just coming to a point where just suddenly something settles and, and 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 I've had this happen in the sitting as well, where just all of a sudden the body just moves itself into the proper posture. Just the energy of the body starts flowing in a way that it just gently adjusts the posture and oh of course it's easy to stand. And um, and so I yeah so ever since then I, I I actually enjoy the standing meditation, and again it's not always easy. It's um, and one of the values of it is just that. Um, when you're doing the standing meditation, or when I'm doing the standing meditation, very often quite strong unpleasant body sensations show, and that's the place for practice. That's the place for practice. 
So Goenka Jean Christopher were my first two teachers. And then in 1980, I went to, um, I went to Thailand. And I went with the intention of going to, um, to the monastery of Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was one of, the, one of a few great, great meditation masters in Thailand at the time. And um, I arrived in Bangkok, and um, when you arrived in Bangkok at that time, they gave you a one-month, uh, a one-month visa. And I knew I wanted to stay longer than that, so I started asking, "How do I get a longer visa?" And, and the um, and people started telling me, "Well, you have to go to this office and that office and here and there and go through all this paperwork and do all this." And they give you a three-month visa, and they said, "But they only give it to monks." And I just thought, well, I'm going to try it. And um, and all the monks were stunned when I got it. <laughs> um, so I got the three-month visa, and um, I was all set to go off to to the monastery. And um, in the meantime, before I left India, I had been, I had actually I had been traveling with Jack Cornfield. And and Jack and Jack said to me at one point, he said, when you get to Thailand look for this Cambodian monk, Ajahn Mahagosananda, and, and find, find him. And I said, oh, okay. So I got, I got to Thailand, and I had completely forgotten this. And, and the day that I was getting ready to leave to go to the monastery, somebody came and said, oh, Ajahn Mahagosananda is here. <laughs> and I, oh, and I remembered the name. And, um, and I went and, um, and introduced myself to him, and um, and it, it also happened that Christopher and Ajahn Mahagosananda had had been in the same monastery in Thailand. And so I approached him, and um, and and I told him that I had been studying and practicing with Christopher, and and that Jack had told me to to find to meet him. And he said, "Oh," he said, um, he said, "Come with me tomorrow morning, seven o'clock. You come with me." Yeah. Oh, where are we going? <laughs> and he was off. <laughs> he was gone. And um, so I stayed. And the next morning, seven o'clock, I was out where he told me to meet him. And um, we got in a car, and we drove off. We drove for about three hours to the um, Cambodian refugee camp. And I spent the next month as his attendant in the refugee camp. Um, actually going to several different camps. And, um, and he became my third teacher. And Ajahn Mahakosananda, um, what, I, what I got from him was joy. Um, he, he, <laughs> he, was a, he was a funny guy. <laughs> I invited him to Toronto one time, and he arrived... <laughs> in the middle of winter, wearing his summer robes and flip-flops. <laughs> so I took him from the airport right to the shoe store <laughs> and got him a pair of orange sneakers <laughs> and um, then a winter coat and then a hat. <laughs> but but he... Um, we would, we would walk through the refugee camp, and I'd be following along behind him, and walk through the refugee camp, and people would just come out of their, their little straw huts. They would come out, and they would just be down on the ground, bowing down to him. Just had so much respect for him. And he would just, he just, he would acknowledge everyone, but with such steadiness, such steadiness and such stillness, it's just so inspiring to be with someone who is so still and so steady. And, and I noticed very soon that no matter what the conditions were, no matter what the situation, and sometimes, and I saw him in some very difficult situations, he always had just the littlest smile. Just this constant inner joy and just bubbling up in him, within, within his being. And, and I really learned from that, I really got from that, the relationship of joy to calmness. 
and steadiness. And 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 that's that's um that's a, a teaching that that always stayed with me. I think, you know, and it's um can't say it always stays with me. <laughs> I often forget. <laughs> um, but um, but just just that 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 memory of him being so so light and joyful. And when he came to Toronto, and I would be driving him around in Toronto, and he, he would always just be sitting, and he'd be meditating with his little smile. And it's just so beautiful to be in that in that presence. And and he um, Ajahn Mahakosananda was was nominated three times for the Nobel Peace Prize. It's such a such a privilege to to have spent that time with him, and um, and to be able to relate to him as one of my teachers. So I spent a month with him, and then I went um, I went to, I finally got to the monastery, and I spent two months in the monastery. And um, and what I learned in the monastery was the um, I learned the the um, the fruit of non-striving of non-striving. Ajahn Buddha Dasa's approach was: he said, "Here's your hut. You live in your hut, and this hut was just in a small clearing, completely surrounded by jungle." couldn't see any other huts. Very rarely, unless I left the hut and walked somewhere else in the monastery, I would very rarely see another person. And he said, just be in the jungle. Just be in the forest. And I spent two months, a lot of that time, just being in the forest. And um, and it just had, had such powerful insights and so much stillness and calmness and quietness and concentration and joy and all the all the factors for awakening were all present just by just by being there and um, and it wasn't and and again it wasn't always pleasant or easy there were um, four or five different kinds of poisonous snakes um, in fact uh, one of one of well, there were a couple of other Westerners there. One of them came running over to my hut one day. Norman, Norman, there's there's a cobra in my hut. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and there were scorpions, poisonous scorpions, and there were these these giant iguanas, like seven, eight foot long iguanas. And you'd be walking down the path. <laughs> it's like. Uh, encountering a dinosaur, <laughs> and um, and and the ties for a pillow they use the Thai monks at least for a pillow they use wood blocks. <laughs> so in my hut, in my hut, I was sleeping on a, a wood floor with a wood block for a pillow <laughs> and a blanket, and. Um, <laughs> So, so again, it, it's not that it was—it's not that it was always a pleasant, blissful, easy existence, but just just cultivating this this sense of non-striving and just being was such a powerful teaching. And then I came back to Canada after three months. I applied to have the visa extended again, and they refused me and told me, you have to leave the country tomorrow. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I, uh, tomorrow, I can't possibly leave tomorrow. <laughs> I have to pack, I have to get a ticket. <laughs> um, and um, so um, I went. Um, um, there, was, there was a woman who, um, the monastery that I stayed in whenever I was in Bangkok, there was a woman, um, a Thai woman, who spent a lot of time there, and her husband was a general in the army. And she said, go see my husband. And uh, I went to see her husband, and he took my passport, and he stamped it and gave me three more days. (laughs) (laughs) The generals really do run the country. (laughs) Uh, So so I left, and I came back to Canada, and... um, 
And I and I and at this point I knew that I wanted sangha. And I was in Toronto and I started looking around for sangha and the only thing I could find uh, actually it found me there was a um, a Tibetan teacher who um, who had just moved to Toronto and the Dalai Lama was in Toronto at the time. And uh, I I, oh, I feel so privileged to have to have had all these connections through my life. It's just um, just uh, just amazing, just so miraculous, and um, and and this this Tibetan teacher was a direct student of the Dalai Lama. So um, so he said, "Come with me. We'll go and see the Dalai Lama." So we went and we saw the Dalai Lama, and then he said, um, he, "The um, the the Tibetan teacher, not the Dalai Lama, but." The other teacher, he he said to me, um, "I'm starting a center here, and I'd like you to help me." And and I said, "Well, I'd like to know more about you." <laughs> and um, and it turned out that um, the Dalai Lama had selected him um, as a young as a young monk to go to Thailand for two years to learn vipassana. And. Um, and it turned out that we had stayed in the same monastery with Ajahn Bhadadasa. And so when I when I heard that, and um, and I found out that he would be perfectly fine with me living in the center and helping with the center and not doing the Tibetan practice, he said, "Good, you do your vipassana practice." And so I stayed in the uh, so I lived in the center with um, a couple of others, and um, and during that time. Uh, I lived there for five years, and during that time, again, a, a tremendous privilege. I, I was able to study with the Dalai Lama's senior and junior teachers, and I was able to study with the the abbot of the Dalai Lama's monastery, and um, and, I, and I studied with most of the the most senior monks who had fled from Tibet. And and I never did the practices, or very rarely. I very rarely did any of the Tibetan practices because my mind would just go back to Dharmsala. <laughs> and um, but um, but I learned so much from them. And um, and again, the from from them, the, the main teaching was about metta and karuna, friendliness and compassion. And and these were these were two. Two things um, in those those years, those days in, in Vipassana in the West, compassion was very rarely mentioned, and until Sharon Salzberg started, metta was very rarely mentioned. It was kind of a little tack on at the end of a retreat, and um, and the and the the Tibetan teachers were constantly talking about about friendly kindness and compassion and so that that's the main thing that I got from them and and so slowly slowly the pieces started fitting together and and then after um, after five years there it was time to go back to India and that was when Christopher started and, and all through this time I had been going to IMS and sitting retreats there I would I would um, I would get off work on a Friday evening. I was living um, in different places in Ontario. And I would get off work Friday evening and I would drive overnight and arrive at IMS Saturday morning. I would sit Saturday and Sunday, drive overnight Sunday night, and go back to work Monday morning. And I did this often. I was so, just so keen to, just to do the practice, just to to intensively practice. And, um, and, and of course, whenever Christopher was at IMS, I would, I would go there and, and spend as much time as I could. And I went to England a few times. By then, he was living in England with a community. And I would go there and, um, and spend as much time as I could. And then, um, so after five years of this, then I, I finally... Uh, got it together to go back. It was time to go back to India. And that was when he first asked me about teaching. And and the teaching, the teaching has been, um, 
such a tremendous part of the path. I have learned so much. I've learned so much from from uh, from the practice of teaching and from all the sharing and from all the 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 wisdom of the people who have sat with me. And again, it's it's been such a such a privilege, such a privilege to sit with with groups of people like yourselves and and some of you. Um, so Jack, where's Jack? Jack, Jack. I think Jack was on the very first retreat I taught in Canada. Yeah, 1991. 1991. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure you've seen some changes over the years. <laughs> uh, but it's been such a privilege, and, and such a privilege to to know quite a few of you over a period of a number of years, and uh, and I just learn have learned so much from from you all, and uh, real bows to your practice and to your sharing and your teaching and your wisdom. Hmm. Yeah, so so as 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 you're all aware, as we have mentioned, the theme of the retreat: beginnings and endings. Because because this is a, I, at this point, I would say a, a possible ending. <laughs> it is an ending, but um, as Molly spoke about, endings and beginnings are. It's hard to define a point when you know when really is the end, and and we don't know. What's next? We don't know what the beginning, the, the 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 immediate beginning after this is unknown, and um, and where that will lead, we don't know. And I, I certainly hope it will it will include many of you, all of you, in some in some form, in some way. So this has been my my practice. My practice, when it comes right down to it, my practice has been um, has been seeing impermanence and unreliability and interdependence through all the ups and downs and all the struggles and all the times of ease and all the all the traveling around all the airports and all the airplanes and all the different people in different places and and everything that goes with all of that. And it truly it truly has been and is and will continue to be a great privilege. So let's sit together quietly for a few minutes. May all beings know the fruits of practice. May all beings live the fruits of practice. May all beings live with wisdom and compassion. So I'd just like to um, 
to speak a little bit about tomorrow. The schedule for tomorrow hasn't been posted yet. Uh, which button? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.